Question 111, what do Christians pray for in the third petition? You'll remember that the Lord's Prayer is made up of six petitions. Here's the answer. In the third petition, which is, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Christians pray that God by his grace would make them able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things as the angels do in heaven. (coughs) So question one, what is meant by God's will in this petition? What is meant by God's will? And for those of you who are new, we normally uh, answer our questions this way, with a very short summary answer that we hope even the children can get. Sometimes it's as few as a word or two, sometimes a short sentence, then with an exposition of that short answer. Well, here's the short answer. God's revealed will. What's meant by God's will in this petition? God's revealed will. We're not talking about here God's secret or decretive will. God's decretive will is, of course, his plan for everything that happens in the world. Think of texts like Ephesians 1.11, where it says that God is the one, quote, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Or Deuteronomy 29.29 that talks about his will as being secret or hidden in this sense. Now on the other hand, God's revealed will is what he requires of men in his laws, his precepts, and his gospel promises. And these things he discloses to men. Ephesians 1.8, God, quote, made known to us the mystery of his will to bring everything under Christ, unquote. So part of God's revealed will is his opening up to us of his future plans, that Christ is returning that there's life after death, that there is an eternal new heavens and new earth someday, things like that. But the predominant part of God's revealed will is his law, is his Bible. Because most of God's decrees stay unpublished, as our forefathers said. Most of what God has planned, he doesn't tell us. These things are hidden from men until time displays them to us. So your will be done is a prayer for men to conform to God's moral will and to respond humbly to God's providences. All right? Now, why do we say this prayer is for God's revealed will to be done and not his decretive will? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First, because this explains the contrast assumed in the prayer. Clearly, there is a presumed difference in the degree to which God's will is carried out on earth and in heaven, right? There's a comparison going on. We're praying that what's perfectly done in heaven would happen more on the earth, 
But there is no such contrast in God's decretive will. God's decretive will is perfectly, infallibly done in heaven, and it is perfectly and infallibly done on the earth. So it doesn't make sense to pray, oh, we wish it were done more like that than down here, because God's decree unalterably, inevitably, always proceeds perfectly in both places. So it doesn't make sense that it's praying for that. Secondly, this view harmonizes with the first and second petitions. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom be advanced. Because we are praying in those two petitions, not for the thing in itself, the thing in God, but for men's responses to it. Right? Remember we said, your name be hallowed. Well, your name be glorified. Your, your name be kept holy. Well, God's name in one sense is, is always holy. It's always glorious. He is glorious. It's, it's men's perception of that that we're praying for it to improve, if you will, or to cover the earth. So with his kingdom. God's kingdom by creation and providence, it's always complete. His salvific kingdom, though, can always advance, and it does advance. So we aren't praying for the things as they are in God. We're praying for the things as they've been given to men in all of these first three petitions, and that's true here as well. And thirdly, it explains how men can pray and live out this prayer. Both the shorter and larger uh, catechisms say the will in this prayer can be known. It can be obeyed. It can be submitted to. But you can't, at least ordinarily, 99% of the time, you don't know God's decretive will. You can't tell me the color of the, the next car that's going to drive by here let alone anything important that's going to happen in your life. And there isn't any way to find that out until time publishes it to you. You can't know God's decretive will the vast majority of the time. So if it could be known and obeyed and submitted to, well, but I can't know it. How could it? Well, that's because we're not talking about that will. We're talking about God's revealed will in the scriptures, his law, his gospel, his character. Since God's preceptive will can be prayed for, can be pursued, it's the right understanding of the petition. All right? So we are praying for this, in this petition, that your revealed will would be done. What God's ordered you and me to live like, what our lifestyle is supposed to be, what we're supposed to believe what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to trust and obey, that's what we're asking for help with. Just as the angels perfectly obey God, we're praying that we might be more angelic. So that's question one. What's meant by God's will in this petition? God's revealed will. God's revealed will. Secondly, how do we come to know this will? 
I like John Flavel, the Puritan's short answer. It's just three words. Rationally and spiritually. Let me unpack that. Rationally and spiritually. In other words, by the word and spirit. You've heard me use that phrase before, I think, about a thousand times. How do we know God's will? From his word, by his spirit. We come to know the revealed will of God when the Holy Spirit graciously enlightens our mind to the truth of Scripture. And remember, we are to find God's will for us in this regard in the Scriptures alone. Isaiah 8.20 To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, there's no light in them. This is what Christ did for his disciples in Luke 24 when it says he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And it's what Christ calls us to do in Ephesians 5 in various places. For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Well, if that's the case, then find out what pleases the Lord. He goes on to say, you should understand what the will of the Lord is. And he enables us to know it by the gracious work of his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 16. It's critical to remind ourselves that this becomes ours, this knowledge, by the grace of God. We don't learn the approved lifestyle by being really good people and meriting it. We gain it by the sheer free grace of God who under no obligation to us filthy, wicked sinners chooses to renew and enlighten us. Knowledge is not earned or learned by our own power alone. It must be taught by God, the Holy Spirit. It doesn't come by dreams. It doesn't come by feelings. It doesn't come by intuitions. Yeah, it really doesn't come by intuitions. Nor does it come by intuitions. It doesn't come because you feel an intense sense of peace or anything outside of Scripture. Now, some of those things may accompany a right understanding of the Bible. But those aren't the root or the test of whether or not something is the will of God. Amen. The test is, what does the Bible teach when properly understood? Yes. And so it comes rationally. It comes through the mind. And it comes spiritually. It comes only by the grace of God. Question three, what impediments are there to this knowledge? Oh, that there would be none. <laughs> One day there will be none, but right now we have them aplenty. What impediments are there to this knowledge? Here's the short answer. Our remaining inability and unwillingness. Our remaining inability and unwillingness. Now, natively, by birth, we are unable and unwilling to know God's will. Remember, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, not that we don't know God's will, it says we cannot 
know God's will as we are born fallen. We are like the children of Israel when we are in that state that describes them in Isaiah 30 verse 9 as those who were unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. And sadly, even with the light of regeneration, we have remaining darkness. We have disinterest. And so we must pray with the psalmist, teach me your decrees. And teach me knowledge and good judgment. And teach me your way, O Lord. Give me an undivided heart. Give me an undivided heart. The men are going to be studying Psalm 12, Lord willing, next Saturday. And it's very interesting in there. It talks about our hearts. And it says they have a heart and a heart. In other words, they have a divided heart. That's a problem. (laughs) Sometimes the heart leads this way. Sometimes the heart leads that way. Well, what's right? So we pray, grant me an undivided heart. Grant me a willing spirit. You see, these psalms of David making these cries in Psalm 119, these are the cries of a regenerate man. A man who has the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He's asking God to overcome his remaining unwillingness and ignorance. Question four, why is knowing placed first? Why is knowing placed first in our answer? Why? Here's the short answer. Because the mind is the leading faculty. The mind, when it comes to perceiving truth, is the leading, it's not the soul, but it is the leading faculty. What what do I mean by leading faculty? I mean that the mind is the channel through which truth comes to a man and then guides him into obedience. Knowing is put first because you can't do the will of God when you don't know the will of God. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we hear good sermons. This is why we read good books. We must know with our minds the truth so that we can do it. John 13, 17, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. The truth of God's will comes through the understanding and sets a man to respond to it, not just with his mind, but with his will, his affections, and with actions. Romans 12, 1 and 2 would be good cross-reference verses for this. It is through the faculty of the mind that knowing and doing God's will is begun. Nothing, not even fervency for God, can replace knowledge. Right? Fervency is a very good thing. Most of us constantly lack in zeal. But it is no replacement for knowledge. Proverbs 19.2 It is not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. 
You see, nothing but a clear apprehension of the will of God can adequately direct you. No amount of felt peace or passion or zeal will make up for it. Now, it's not contrary to passion or zeal or felt peace. It's not contrary to those things, but it is prior. And they ought to depend on that and not the other way around. So in this prayer, we ask first for the knowledge of God's will. Hear Paul's expansion on this petition from um, Colossians 1, 9, and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. How have you been praying for them, Paul? Asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Well, why would you want them to be full of the knowledge of God? Won't they get heady? Won't they be useless? We pray this, he goes on to say, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. If you don't know how to please God in every way, you won't please God in every way. You can't. You can't. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That's why knowing is placed first. But to help balance this out, question five. Does obedience always follow after knowledge? Oh, yeah, right. Everybody's just shaking their head. What a dumb question, Pastor. Even the newest Christian knows the answer to that is no. And that's our short answer, no. Does obedience always follow after knowledge? No, because we are weak and we have remaining sin. Even when we know what is right, we sometimes don't live it out because of an inability or unwillingness to obey. That is why we are praying here, not just for the knowledge, but for an ability and a willingness to obey. Much rebellion disinclination and weakness toward God's law still remains within us. Our own experience in this area is so strong, we scarcely need scripture to confirm it, but of course it does. Think of texts like uh, Romans 7, verses 14 to 24, kind of a famous passage in the New Testament. If, if this is Paul the apostle speaking, and he's having these kind of struggles, woe is you and me, right? Mm -hmm. For what I want to do, verse 15, I do not do. Verse 18, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. You see, he had a, he had a knowledge. He knew what the right thing was to do. He didn't always do it. Here is a, a willing, but a weak man. Other times we're not willing, but we set out on our own path Selfishly putting our wills ahead of God's. And so again, we ask with the psalmist, Psalm 119.36, quote, to turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. I mean, that's why we do it, isn't it? We think there's more to gain on our own terms than by obeying God. We're always wrong when we make that uh, choice. We're always wrong. But the fact is, we sometimes actually believe that and we place an idol in the place of God, and we go do something for our gain that's not for our gain at all. It just steps us into misery. 
Fisher sums up this point when he says, we pray that he would remove the weakness and perverseness of our hearts and by his grace incline us to set about to start and keep up the practice of every commanded duty in the strength of that grace which is secured in the promise of the new covenant. And it is this, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Christians, believers, those with a new heart, those in the new covenant, they walk in God's <coughs> statutes. They have that ability. And God works that in us. Question six. What is submission to God's will? What is submission to God's will? The short answer is agree, agreeably bowing to it in precept and providence. Agreeably bowing to it in precept or under precept and under providence. In other words, we pray for submission to God's revealed will in two senses or cases. First, to accept God's precepts with meek agreement. Do you know what meekness is? This is a word that our, our world doesn't know, or, and if they understood it, they wouldn't appreciate it. Matthew Henry's definition of meekness is, is beautiful. It's to be easily led. Now, when your shepherd is Jesus, and he's leading you in a certain way, you ought to be meek. You ought to bow the neck and quickly and only follow him. Ephesians 6.6 6 describes it this way, doing the will of God from the heart, serving wholeheartedly. This is a sincere obedience to his will with the whole soul, with all of our faculties. It's not obeying God with our bodies, but inside we're just coursing with complaint or disagreement. That's not submission to God's will. This is obedience not just with our head, arms, and legs, but with our heart, with our whole soul. It's possible, isn't it, to know what is right and even to do it and yet not really be agreeing with God the whole time. It is, isn't it? Of course, the worst ones in that are our children. We see it all the time. We rarely do. No, our, our children just reflect our own struggles, don't they? Um, yes, that's true of them. It's sometimes true of us. You may obey because you fear punishment. And that's not entirely wrong in and of itself. Or you just don't want to be shamed. Well, although that's a valid pull to do what's right, it's hardly submission to God. It is obedience of a certain kind, but it is quite defective. Or you might do God's law for your own sake, for your own reputation, for your own glory. 
the Pharisees prove that men can work very, very hard to externally know and obey God and yet not be submitting to it or complying with a right motive in any sense of the word. When children do their parents' will merely out of a sense of compulsion, not because they agree with it, this is unsubmissiveness. And when we pray this prayer, we are fighting against these sinful dispositions. We're asking God to help us to truly obey him from the heart, to submit to him when his rules come to us and we know what to do. We're admitting, I I can't do this on my own. There are times I don't want to obey you. I I need your help. (laughs) Your will be done, Father. But there's a second way that we need to submit to God's will, and that is to God's providences with contented agreement. We've said we rarely know God's decrees until they come to pass. But God's decree does come to our knowledge as time unfolds. And when it becomes known to us, our duty is to submit to it. We're not to argue against things like Christ's return or final judgment or the destruction of unbelievers, even if they are our earthly loved ones. These foretellings are God's will revealed in the prophetic word, and we must agree with them, and we must bow to them with a compliant spirit. Likewise, we must submit to God's revelations of his will in providence, especially when they afflict us in trouble or loss or pain. We ought never to murmur, to moan, to mutter, but rather follow Christ's example in the garden when he said, not my will, but yours be done. That needs to be sincere, free, even joyful. This contented agreement isn't bearing with a trouble because there's no choice. That's stoicism. We ought not to imitate the Israelites in Jeremiah 5.3, who though crushed by the Lord, it says they made their faces as hard as stone. Oh yeah, you're going to dish it out to me? Well, I'm just going to get harder. That's not how a God-fearer, a believer, (laughs) responds to God. At least it ought not to be. That isn't submission. That's rebellion. Instead, submission is, as Thomas Watson says, a gracious frame of soul whereby a Christian is content to be at God's disposal. Whatever your will is for me, Father, that is what I want. I don't want my own will. I don't know what's best for me. You do. And when you bring whatever it is, I will be content. This is the attitude of Job. This is the attitude of Eli in 1 Samuel 3 when he says, He's the Lord! Let him do what's good in his eyes. This is what the 
Caesarean Christians were talking about when they said, the Lord's will be done. There's no resentment, no animosity, no bitterness, no complaint. They are agreeably bowing. They are content to submit to the hand of God. This is part also of what we're praying when we say, your will be done. And now, if we weren't feeling enough conviction, let me ask question seven. Are we praying for partial obedience? Do we pray for partial obedience? Okay, time to stop, Pastor. Enough. No, my heart needs it, so we're going to keep going. Do we pray for partial obedience? No. We pray for comprehensive obedience. What here in Scripture, in all things, in all things. In other words, we're praying that we would know, obey, and submit to all of God's commandments in every situation with our whole souls. Is that really the standard? Yes. God's will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Romans 12. In all of its breadth, it is just in every aspect. Ezekiel 18.25. And we are to be what? Perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.48. Psalm 119.4. You have laid down precepts that are to be not partially obeyed. Fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways, he goes on to say, were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. While we cannot in this life achieve doing his will in all things, we are to pray for it and we are to work toward it. Brethren, selectivity in obedience is sin. Jesus was never even once selective. He fully obeyed under every circumstance, every commandment of God from the fullness of his soul. And that's who we're trying to imitate. Right? Now the good news is, one day we'll be able to do that. Amen. In fact, it's better than that. One day we won't be able to do other than that. Amen. And so our joy will be complete. Our joy will be full. Well, finally, question eight. How are these things to be done? Well, in a single word, they're to be done angelically. Angelically. Who does the will of God in heaven? Well, well the spirits of just men made perfect do. Yes, that's right. But especially the holy angels know, obey, and submit to God's will. How do the angels do it? Well, there are many lists of adverbs that describe them. The larger catechism includes the following. With humility, with cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy. We might add, and without question. In a word, they do God's will faultlessly. They do it perfectly. And that is to be our prayer, and that is to be our goal. As it's done in heaven, we ought to be aiming to do that here. To do God's will as well, not just as Jesus did it, not as even the best uh, human examples we know do it around us, and those are all good things, but as the angels do. All right? 
Let's pray.